Uh, welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. It's December 16th, 2020, and it's the fourth episode of our second season, and I'm joined by uh, Austin Rupp. Hey, Austin. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Valerie Vaughn. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so Valerie is a recent transplant to Utah. She came here from Michigan this year. Um, she's now the Director of Hospital Medicine Research here at the University of Utah, and her research focuses on improving the safety of hospitalized patients by combating healthcare-associated infections and reducing antibiotic overuse. She is the hospitalist lead for an initiative to improve antibiotic use within the Michigan Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium as well. So, Valerie, uh, why did you decide to come to Utah? How did we get so lucky? <laughs> Well, you know, I've been eyeing Utah for uh, a long time now. Um, this is a great place to do kind of work related to antibiotic stewardship. There are a bunch of kind of people really interested in it here. University of Utah is a great place to think about antibiotic use. Um, and so that was a major draw. Um, and then I happened to also move here uh, for my now husband, so um, who also lives in the Salt Lake City area. So. Um, yeah, it ended up being that, and you add some skiing and and, and triple triple whammy to bring me down. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, so you you did all your training in Michigan, is that right? Yep, I've uh, been at the university. Well, I went to Duke University for undergrad, and then I've been at Michigan for medical school, on through research fellowship and into faculty there. And how did you get interested in like the stewardship and antibiotic stuff? Yeah. So. Um, uh, I think kind of a few things brought me into it. You know, um, I've always been interested in uh, infections and viruses and how do you kind of distinguish between the two. And um, the fun thing about thinking about antibiotic stewardship, are that, uh, there are a lot of these reasons that people prescribe antibiotics that have nothing to do with the data. So it's, you know, fear of infection, um, uh, misunderstanding of like the risk of resistance. There are a lot of you know, I prescribe it because that's how I was taught. I can't overturn someone else's decision. So a lot of these sociological phenomenon related to antibiotic prescribing. And I just think that's really cool. And there are a lot of things in medicine that are like that. But I mm -hmm. think studying antibiotics brings them all together and creates kind of a good formula to study it um, and other things too. So mm -hmm. how do those factors affect other decisions that we make as medical providers? And so um, that plus a little bit of serendipity. There was a great group to work with in Michigan and a great collaborative of uh, almost 50 hospitals to try to do this improvement work with. And so um, that's that got me started and I'm still going now. Awesome. Very cool. Well, on our very first episode of this podcast, we reviewed one of your papers. It was uh, co-authored with looks like one of your frequent collaborators, Dr. Lindsay Petty. Uh -huh. And uh, it was in JAMA Internal Medicine. The title was Risk Factors and Outcomes Associated with Treatment of Asymptomatic Bacteriuria in Hospitalized Patients. So kind of a similar study to the one we we're going to talk about today. But it's really yeah. cool to have you on here so we can, you know, pepper you with questions directly. So it all started. <laughs> simpler, t simpler times when, when uh, we could talk about, I mean, I'm glad we're back to it, but a lot has changed since then, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this first article we wanted to talk about today is in December's issue of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and it's titled Assessment of Testing and Treatment of Asymptomatic Bacteriuria Initiated in the Emergency Department. So, Valerie, what question are you trying to answer with this study, and, and, and how did you get interested in that question? 
Yeah, so it's great that you brought up the prior work that uh, Dr. Petty did um, uh, because that kind of formed the basis of this. So, you know, I work with uh, that 50 hospital collaborative in the state of Michigan, the Michigan Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium. And our goal was to try to improve the care of hospitalized patients and, and focus on a lot of things, but specifically on antibiotic use. And one of the big things we know about antibiotic overuse in the hospitals is that a lot of it is due to treating patients with antibiotics who have asymptomatic bacteria. So they have bacteria in their urine. Um, it's probably a marker of debility, but treating it with antibiotics doesn't help unless they're symptomatic. And so that prior paper that you mentioned kind of really brought home that issue that um, there are 80% of patients who were treated with antibiotics that had asymptomatic bacteria that it uh, actually led to longer lengths of stay in those patients. So this was an issue that we really needed to, to think about. And so this work that, that just came out in um, Open Forum Infectious Diseases, again, led by Dr. Petty, was saying how, you know, the first question is like, how do you actually fix this? And to know that, it's really helpful to know kind of who starts the prescribing process. And so we wanted to look and say, let's look at that same population of patients treated inappropriately with antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria and say, where do those antibiotics get started? Um, and because uh, we focus a lot, our collaborative focuses a lot on hospitalists. Um, and we're really hoping you know, to try to think about what we can do as hospitalists, but also who else do we need to engage to really make this work more impactful? And so we started looking at emergency, emergency medicine physicians. Yeah, so it looks like then um, you were doing kind of a, a similar analysis to the previous paper. You, you included patients if they were admitted through the emergency department, they had to have a, a positive urine culture within two days of hospitalization, and then they had to have asymptomatic bacteria, which I would imagine retrospectively can be challenging to identify. So how did you guys decide if they were asymptomatic or not? Yeah, so... Um... I, I will agree with you, it's hard to, to do retrospectively. And if people don't document things, um, we can't capture it. But what we do have are these great, really well-trained abstractors who um, have been doing this now for years and, and work at each hospital, often are, you know, have nursing background, quality background, and are helping to do improvement locally. And they capture data from each of these patients and pour through the medical record to find any mention of symptoms. So those can be symptoms actually in the orders. You know, a lot of us have order sets where you have to put in like a reason for obtaining the urine culture. So mm -hmm. symptom there, symptom in the progress note, nurses mentioning symptoms uh, in their kind of daily assessments. So we gather it from all sorts of sources. And then we also, so one of the biggest culprits for uh, um, inappropriate antibiotic use in patients with asymptomatic bacteria is altered mental status. Mm -hmm. So that's something where we have to dive even a little bit deeper. So it's easy to find that they're altered. What we have to find as well is, are there other reasons uh, that you have to think that that altered mental status could be from a urinary tract infection? So do they have an elevated white blood cell count? Do they have signs of sepsis? And so we can collect that information as well from daily vital signs and laboratory results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it looked like you guys excluded patients if they had like a leukocytosis, hypotension, two SIRS criteria, um, and then also, um, if they were like immunosuppressed, like if they had uh, AIDS or like an ANC less than 500, 
and then signs of organ dysfunction that might be associated with sepsis, like an elevated lactate or, or elevated creatinine, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, and, and part of the reason behind this is kind of a risk benefit. So, you know, there are probably patients within that category that are, uh, you know, neutropenic or have signs of severe sepsis or septic shock who do not have a urinary tract infection. But I don't think any of us are ever going to say, if your patient's hypotensive in front of you, don't treat them with antibiotics. But what we know is that when patients are kind of less critically ill, so they're not immune compromised, um, or at least not severely immune compromised, and their vital signs are relatively stable, that you have a little bit of time kind of to look for alternative causes of things like altered mental status um, before jumping in and empirically treating with antibiotics. So we wanted to make sure we identified a patient population uh, where it was correct to kind of watch and wait, because um, there's definitely a population, those that are very severely ill, that I would never tell you not to give antibiotics to. So, mm-hmm. um, And I'm pretty big on stewardship. So, Yeah. So what were the outcomes that you guys chose to look at, and, and how did you choose those? Yeah, so the first thing is we just wanted to look and see, okay, who's doing the testing and who's doing the treatment here? So the first thing, we, that was kind of the first step. And what we found is that for these patients, you know, 80% of the actual urine testing uh, was ordered by emergency medicine. So, um, and I think that all makes sense for us. Um, You know, most people kind of, as they come in, get a a whole suite of testing kind of as they come into the hospital, and it's usually initiated in the emergency room. We also found that uh, more than two-thirds of patients had their antibiotics started by the emergency medicine physicians. So one thing that I kind of took home as a hospitalist is if you look at patients where their antibiotics were started in the ER, 80% of them had antibiotics continued for three days or more by the inpatient physician. So this is actually a phenomenon that's been studied before called uh, diagnostic momentum, or you know, there are also elements of like anchoring here, which is kind of once someone labels someone with a diagnosis, it takes, you have to move heaven and earth to get rid of that diagnosis. Um, you know, you might not have initially initiated treatment, but, you know, you kind of talk yourself into, well, maybe they had information I didn't, or I don't know the whole story. Uh, let's just, let's just finish the treatment. Um, and so we, we see that evident here by the fact that if antibiotics are started in the ER, they're continued by, by a hospitalist. Um, so that was kind of the big major finding. And then we looked at patient outcomes as well. So how does that antibiotic treatment actually affect patients? Um, and we found, again, the, the association of antibiotic treatment with longer lengths of stay, but we also found that it was associated with higher rates of C. difficile. Um, and so, so that's something important that's been shown in many other larger studies, but was the first time we'd found it for asymptomatic bacteria. Um, and so I think it just argues, you, you know, we talk a lot about reducing antibiotic use to, to reduce resistance, but I like to kind of focus on the patient in front of you because as clinicians, that's, that's who we're thinking about. We're not thinking about society, but what we know is that treating patients with asymptomatic bacteria, treating the patient in front of you uh, with antibiotics can actually lead to harm in the forms of things like uh, C. difficile and uh, prolonging their length of stay because of other complications. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting to look at who these patients were, too. The median age was 78 years old, and it was 74% women. And, and I feel like that, that tracks pretty well with my experience for who are, who are the patients most likely to have asympt- asymptomatic bacteria that ends up getting treated. 
it's these little old ladies that come in and, you know, they check their urine and it always looks a little dirty, you know? And so then it reflexes to a urine culture. Um, have you guys looked at maybe that as a, as a way to eliminate these unnecessary urine cultures is try to break that reflex? Yeah. So um, I, I just want to emphasize kind of your first point there, which is how common asymptomatic bacteria is in these patients. So if you have someone over the age of 70 coming from the community who's a woman, um, uh, about 17% of those will have asymptomatic bacteria. Um, if you look at people coming from a long-term care or a nursing home, that number jumps to 50%. So, you know, if you test for it, it's going to be there. Um, and it doesn't tell you any information about whether it's causing anything because it was going to be there regardless. So, so that's kind of the first thing to point out is just this is one of those tests, the urinalysis and the urine culture that um, have a really high uh, uh, sensitivity and a really poor specificity. So you're going to pick it up all the time and it doesn't provide a lot of information unless it's negative. And actually, it has a really high negative predictive value. If someone has a negative UA, they do not have a urinary tract infection. So I, I, I love that you brought up kind of that point first. Um, you asked about reflex urine testing, and uh, it's actually like a, a topic that um, we're planning on doing kind of a pro-con debate at the next Infectious Diseases Week about because it's really hot right now. So urine culture reflex testing was something that was sold as a way to reduce asymptomatic bacteria use, and a lot of places adopted it, and it worked for a lot of places, and a lot of places it worked really poorly for. And so I think there are two reasons for this. It depends kind of on your baseline rate of t testing. Um, you know, if, uh, if uh, you were getting a lot of patients where you were doing a lot of urine cultures anyway, then a reflex test might reduce the number of urine cultures you're getting and might reduce treatment. But if you were a place that was already doing a pretty good job, the problem with a reflex urine culture is I've seen so many times people say, well, the urinalysis indicated it was a UTI. That's why it reflexed. So clearly the fact that it reflexed means that it's a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. It's all based on symptoms, not on the test results. Mm -hmm. And it gives people kind of a false sense of security that, you know, well, if the reflex happened, that must mean it's a UTI. Um, so, so it's not, um, reflex testing is not a magic bullet. It really needs to be coupled with other things and, and education and, uh, other interventions um, to, to really improve uh, treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. Uh, you also highlight that, um, you know, about 25% of the patients had altered mental status. And I think those are, those can be some of the most challenging patients to make this judgment call on, especially, you know, you're like on a night shift or something, you're just getting like annihilated with admissions. And then they want you to admit this little old lady who's confused and can't tell you if she has symptoms or not right. but her family's in there saying oh every time every time she gets like this they check her urine and she's got an infection and I remember a patient I had as an intern that's like still haunts me this like little old lady that had a little episode of confusion and my my attending just insisted like we're going to treat this as a UTI and I was like gosh I really don't think it's a UTI and then the urine culture came back with pseudomonas and she'd been getting ceftriaxone. And I was like, look, we weren't even giving her the right antibiotics and she's better. Like, let's just stop the madness. And my attending was like, no, we're going to switch her to ceftazidime. And we ended up putting a pick line in this lady and sending her to a sniff to get IV antibiotics for a fake UTI. And a week later, she comes back with a blood clot from her pick line. 
And then a week after that, she comes back with C. diff. Like it was just like a complete iatrogenic spiral. And that, you know, that's what I think about now every time I have one of these patients. Yeah. Now that is a, that story, I mean, just highlights everything that we kind of think about. And it's, it's actually really amazing that you got that feedback. I think some of the hard times for us is that we don't get feedback on those patients. So we give them antibiotics and we send them out and we may never hear about them again. They get readmitted somewhere else or they get readmitted when we're off service. And so we don't actually hear about that, but we do know when a patient gets sick in front of our eyes, you know, so we know when those things happen and we're less likely to know about the long-term consequences of antibiotic use. So um, that's why we publish stuff like this to try to show people that there are consequences. And, um, you know, I love hearing that story from you because that really drives it home about, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things that kind of went wrong there. Mm -hmm. The one thing I think about in these patients with dementia is we know that dementia is kind of a, has a waxing and waning course. So people with dementia uh, will get intermittently delirious. And often that delirium will kind of go away on its own. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, like all things that wax and wane. Um, but I always, so if the patient is hemodynamically stable, that's kind of my caveat, because again, if they're in you know severe sepsis septic shock treat them with antibiotics mm -hmm. but if they're um, hemodynamically stable treating the uti actually makes you stop looking for other things and there mm -hmm. are other things that are far more likely as causes of kind of delirium so thinking about you know medication side effects which are one of the biggest things um, even over-the-counter medicines obviously in patients with dementia can cause delirium Thinking about dehydration, which is often an underlying cause too. You get a little dehydrated, creates a little bit of delirium, and it creates this cycle of dehydration. Thinking about other things like constipation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so those kind of things, I think it's really important to rule those out first. And as long as the patient is hemodynamically stable, you have a little bit of time to kind of tick through the other boxes of what it could be um, before you jump to well, we have nothing less left, let's try the UTI. The problem with continuing to treat the asymptomatic bacteria is exactly what you already mentioned. It creates this cycle of building resistance in these patients. Mm -hmm. And it goes from like the first time, okay, the first time you can treat them with nitrofurantoin, but then the next time, you know, maybe they get a fluoroquinolone and suddenly they're fluoroquinolone resistant. Now it's like pseudomonas and now they're only IV antibiotics that yeah. cover it. And it just... Each time you can see, like if you go back, the resistance is to the last antibiotic they got. And so every time that cycle happens, your options are getting more and more limited. Mm -hmm. um, and you're having to do more and more invasive, harder drugs to give them. And then maybe at some point that actually does become a symptomatic urinary tract infection and, mm -hmm. and you're down to having very little to treat them with. So yeah, it's, it's tough. I know it's tough. I, I take care of these patients too, and I see it and I want to do it. And having the conversations with families, I think is tough. Mm -hmm. I always go back and say, you know, we're going to be watching her very closely. And if she develops signs that this is a true infection, I will treat her. Um, but right now, uh, with how she looks, I think we can do all of these other things and talk about the medication, talk about the hydration. Um, and only give antibiotics if one of these things happen so that they know that you're still, that antibiotics aren't completely off the table yeah. um, and you're doing other things in the meantime. I was struck by a couple other additional things that you guys found. Um, 
you know, sort of notwithstanding the diagnosis of asymptomatic bacteria versus a UTI, regardless, folks were treated for a median of six days as well, which was very striking to me. That's, you know, too long for cystitis, regardless, even if you're going to call it a UTI, right? So there's uh, some low-hanging fruit that we could also go after. And then you talked to our group, I don't remember when, like within the last year, though, about mostly fluoroquinolones, I think, right? But um, the most common antibiotic choices that you guys found were, you know, ceftriaxone followed by a fluoroquinolone. So um, lots of opportunities here for clear diagnosis, um, which as an aside, you know, for me, history, it all comes back to history. But in a lot of these folks, it's very difficult, like you're alluding to, to understand, um, do they have symptoms or not? You know, half the time they have suprapubic tenderness, half the time they don't, half the time they say, oh, yeah, maybe I have been going to the bathroom a little bit more frequently. And so sussing those out um, takes some skill and effort and, and not all of us are always willing to do that. But even if you decide that they have a UTI, we're still probably treating them inappropriately in some ways, which was not the focus of, of this study, I understand. But um, still still a lot of roles for stewardship, um, you know, kind of up and down um, the spectrum. Yeah, even yeah, if- 30, uh, I was just gonna say 30% of them got fluoroquinolones on discharge. And that's, you know, discharge is a big area that I work on and that's clearly 30% is way too high. We really, especially elderly patients, fluoroquinolones are just not a great choice. Um, uh, and many of them could have gotten more narrow antibiotics. So definitely an important target for stewardship. And even as you were talking about, Austin, when you're, when you're trying to figure out what symptoms they have, like most of the time what we're trying to figure out is does this patient have cystitis, just like a bladder infection, right? Like if they have pilo, it's usually not very subtle, right? But if, if they have cystitis, Maybe that's more subtle, but also like the treatment for cystitis does not need to be IV ceftriaxone, which is what they're getting in the ER before they even come up to the floor. It's like you've already like given them this broad spectrum IV antibiotic for a bladder infection, where you could probably give them something oral if you stopped and thought about it, right? So that's, that's my last bit, I guess. But so what, what's the next step, Valerie? What, where are you guys headed with this next? And Jenkins, I had one, I mean, maybe one other quick question. Obviously, the purpose of this is not to convict our ED colleagues. You know, they have a really tough job. We all acknowledge that. Um, but I think, Valerie, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is another tool in the toolkit to maybe help our colleagues say, we don't always have to give the ceftriaxone when the UA is abnormal, right? I think there's, like you alluded to, there's still plenty of opportunity for us to improve because one third of the time we're starting the antibiotics in your paper, right? But, um, you know, the ED has a tough job, but maybe, you know, we can hand them this um, every time we get, you know, an altered old lady who has gotten ceftriaxone. <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely, my, my goal here was not, yet. you know, uh, I'm thankful I don't work down in the emergency room. It is a tough place. I mean, the time pressure there, I feel like we're always on pressure, you know, have pressure to discharge patients and shorten length of stay, but they're talking about hours, not days. Um, and they have far more limited diagnostic information. Um, and even sometimes it's our fault, right? Like we push back and we say, well, what's your reason for admitting this patient? Can't they just go back home? But if they're on IV antibiotics, they meet inpatient criteria, right? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of it also that's kind of like us pushing on them. And I've heard that from emergency room docs, like, hey, I tried not to treat. And, uh, and the person I called to admit this patient was like, why don't you just send them home? And I was like, but they, they can't go home, fine. You know, they have a urinary tract infection. We'll, we'll call it that. Um, and so, 
anyway, this is, I think this paper is a great way to start a conversation between emergency room and hospital medicine and how do you kind of negotiate that? How do you improve on both sides? Because it's a two-folded thing. You know, ER should treat less and we should stop continuing antibiotics quite so much, um, recognizing that we have more information than they have uh, when we continue antibiotic treatment. Um, so next steps, you know, we, we are working on kind of, there have been a lot of great interventions on how to improve asymptomatic bacteria treatment and working on kind of disseminating that across hospitals. So doing things like, uh, uh, we didn't really get a chance to talk about behavioral economics and diagnostic stewardship, but if you can make doing the right thing easier and doing the hard thing harder, it really improves. So in the ED, this is really important. So take out urine culture and your analysis from admission order or from order sets, take it out from our admission order sets. Um, a lot of this is nursing driven. So nursing will collect the urinalysis before it's even been ordered. And so there are some nursing driven protocols that say, okay, you know, you can collect it, but you hold it and store it until you get an order from a physician um, or until the, the patient's been reviewed. Um, there are other studies that have like actually hidden urine culture results and say, call the lab to get your result. And uh, that extra step of having to call someone just makes no one actually make the phone call. Um, so there are lots of really cool things you can do to, to reduce this. But I think I hope to see this as step one and kind of creating collaboration between emergency room physicians and hospital medicine physicians. My dog agrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. So, so much, you know, to unpack here and so many opportunities for improvement. So um, fantastic. Thanks, Valerie. Thank you for having me, you guys. This has been great. Yeah. Well, we'll have you on again next time you publish something. Although it looks like on your PubMed, you publish something about once a month. So maybe that would be too much. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back. Let me know uh, the next time you, you're interested and I'd be happy to come back and chat. All right. Well, thanks, Valerie. We'll catch you next time. Okay. Thanks. Bye, y'all. All right. I thought that was pretty good. Oh, yeah. That was great. You want to talk to us about uh, what's this next paper? All right. So uh, I'm going to talk about how are we going to pronounce this? Baricitinib, baricitinib, baricitinib. I like baricitinib. Baricitinib. Okay. So I'm going to talk about baricitinib plus remdesivir for hospitalized adults with COVID-19, a.k.a. Act 2. Act 2. Act two. <laughs> so, um, published by Dr. Khalil et al. out of UNMC. Woo! You know that guy? Um, I, I don't know him personally, but Pops does, obviously. Anyway, um, this was published by Dr. Khalil and Associates. Um, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on December 11th, 2020. And I thought that uh, the opening line potentially invalidated the whole study, but they say, despite the benefits of remdesivir, substantial morbidity and mortality due to COVID-19 remain. So, um, you know, duh on the second part of that. And the first part is dubious. What benefits of remdesivir? <laughs> um, anyway, they, uh, they are investigating baricitinib which is a uh, JAK inhibitor. Um, and it, this drug was actually predicted to be beneficial in the setting of COVID-19 with the use of artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, I did not dive into that, but... Um, oh, so now robots are going to tell us how to treat COVID? Is that what this is? A computer can do my job better than I can. 
<laughs> um, anyway, it inhibits the intracellular signaling pathway of cytokines known to be elevated in severe COVID-19, like IL-2, IL-6, IL-10, interferon gamma, and granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor. It also acts against the virus through impairment of the AP2-associated protein kinase 1 and prevention of SARS-CoV-2 cellular entry, entry and infectivity and also improves lymphocytes counts in COVID-19. Um, so lots of purported benefits of baricitinib. Um, I guess we said we were going to say baricitinib. Anyway, I'll say it how I want. Um, you know, notably, Eli Lilly did have some input in this study. Um, they are the manufacturer of baricitinib, so take that for whatever it means. Um, enrollment was from May 8th to July 1st, so this is now six months ago. Um, there were 67 enrollment sites in eight countries. Folks were randomly assigned in a double-blinded, one-to-one fashion, which was stratified by site and disease severity to remdesivir plus baricitinib or remdesivir plus placebo. Uh, patients were allowed to receive other drugs as part of, only as part of written hospital policy and otherwise additional off-label COVID treatments were prohibited, notably including glucocorticoids. So you it's a little unclear to me when you could and couldn't be on glucocorticoids. Like if, if it was hospital policy, you could get glucocorticoids or if you had other stuff um, like, you know, adrenal insufficiency, ARDS, notably ARDS, um, you hmm. could get glucocorticoids. So Interesting. Uh, talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, the primary outcome was time to recovery, defined as the first day that a patient attained a one through three on the ordinal scale within 28 days of enrollment. I think um, we all have the ordinal scale memorized by now. Yes, yes. Um, you know, so that one through three is like, don't need to be in the hospital, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the outcomes were stratified by disease, disease severity, and um, they talk about... <laughs> I don't know what this means, but the competing event of death was handled in a manner similar to the fine gray competing risk approach. The ah, the fine, fine gray. Yeah. The old fine gray. <laughs> there were a myriad of secondary outcomes, mostly anything they could think of. Um, we'll talk about those later. And they did have some pre-specified subgroups, most notably disease severity. So um, there were 1,033 patients, 515 to the combo group, which was remdesivir plus baricitinib, and 518 to remdesivir plus placebo, which was the control group. Um, jumping to the results, patients in the combo group recovered one day faster than patients in the control group. So the median wow. time to recovery for the combo group, or for the control group was eight. The median time to recovery for the combo group was seven. Uh, the rate ratio was 1.16 with a confidence interval of 1.01, just eking in there, uh, yeah. 1.01 to 1.32 with a p-value of 0.03. So, um, you know, the primary outcome was positive or was um, statistically significant in favor of the combo group. Uh -huh. um, and then they start to break it down by disease severity. So um, among patients who are receiving high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, uh, their median time to recovery was 10 days in the combo group versus 18 days in the control group with a risk ratio of, uh, or rate ratio of 1.51 confidence interval 1.10 to 2.08. So that, that was a, an outcome that they really honed in on. Um, uh -huh. And the sicker folks, they got better significantly faster. Hmm. 
Um, I would note, you know, actually, interestingly, that with a baseline um, ordinal scale score of seven, that the uh, rate ratio confidence interval is is not as you know it does cross one it starts 0.59 to 1.97 and then the same with with four or five which are you know mostly our patients so so these results are really driven by a baseline ordinal scale score of six Mm -hmm. um you know which i guess we should say is hospitalized on non-invasive mechanical ventilation or on high flow nasal cannula yeah. So that was, that was the group that stood to benefit the most from baricitinib, and they did improve much faster within that group. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of breakdown in the paper and in the results. Um, you know, they talk about sort of improvement by day 15 um, was better in the combo group. Um, you know, a lot of the secondary outcomes were better in the combination group or all of the secondary outcomes were better in the combination group, some of which were statistically significant. Notably, folks required less oxygen, like they progressed to needing oxygen less frequently when they were um, on baricitinib and the same with mechanical ventilation. So the combo group was beneficial there. Um, Mortality was lower in the combination group, but not statistically significant because the trial was not powered to detect this. But overall, you know, 5.1% of patients who got both died versus 7.8% who got only remdesivir at 15 days. And here, the greatest differences in mortality were with a baseline ordinal scale score of 5. So, you know, people did die less frequently, but not statistically significant. Um, they do talk a little bit about glucocorticoids in the results. Um, the rate ratio for recovery among the 223 patients who received glucocorticoids was 1.06, um, with a confidence interval of 0.75 to 1.48. So, you know, not statistically significant. Which, but that's you know, a small subgroup. Small subgroup, not part of the trial. They just sort of, you know, throw that out to try and compare this to recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we should also note that adverse events were the same or better in the combination group. They, they break it down a lot of different ways. Um, there was some concern about increased thrombosis in the combo group based on jack inhibition, but that was not the case. Um, you know, the incidences of all serious adverse events uh, or of all adverse events, serious adverse events, fatal outcomes and adverse events leading to discontinuation of the trial product were lower in the combination group. So, you know, pretty strong uh, evidence for safety of baricitinib. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of overall, the, the authors do bring up recovery. They, they talk about how ACT2 is different from recovery and how they really can't be compared based on differences in trial design and a much higher baseline mortality in recovery. You know, as, as you may recall, the baseline mortality in recovery was like 30 percent um it was 24.6 percent in the the control arm yeah i had to look that up because i couldn't remember and yeah i think that is an important difference between these studies i mean yeah i mean the way higher mortality in recovery and so maybe that's why you were able to see a mortality benefit with dexamethasone whereas it was only like 7.8 percent in the control arm of this study so pretty big difference there and I don't know if that's, you know, what other factors play into that, if, if, if it's just that we know more about treating this, this disease now, and, and so patients are doing better, or if because earlier on, you know, in the UK or wherever they were doing the recovery trial, they were like overwhelmed with patients, right, and they didn't have enough, you know, ICU beds or whatever, and now maybe we do, um, and so patients are getting better care. 
uh, I, I don't know why the mortality rates were so different. Agreed. And I do think that's a valid criticism of recovery. I'm not sure that it totally invalidates the findings as some people would suggest. And so act four, as we know, is a head to head comparison of baricitinib to dexamethasone. Mm -hmm. You know, initially when I heard about this and I don't know how far we want to get into this, but initially when I had a patient who was going to get enrolled in act four, my question was, is it ethical or good or, you know, like reasonable to deprive a patient of dexamethasone that we think is saving lives. And, you know, when you think about it, um, the study did have high baseline mortality, wasn't really placebo controlled, had other issues. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is a level of equipoise that continues to exist where it is reasonable to randomize folks to baricitinib or dexamethasone. And that's an important question to answer. And so, um, that they, they set that up here in the conclusions, and I think they do a pretty good job of it and, uh, you know, results in a year, <laughs> six months, whatever. Well, you know? I, yeah, I think we'll get them pretty fast. I think, uh, yeah, great rundown. Um, it is interesting to me how much they highlight that one subgroup, the ordinal group six, patients on high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP, basically. They're, they're it's like no one, right? Like who's getting BiPAP now? Like, were we doing that? Well, like, yeah, I would say to tube, right? I mean, right. I don't think a lot are getting BiPAP. There's probably our patients in the ICU that we're not aware of that they're trying BiPAP on maybe because they have like COPD or congestive heart failure or something. Um, but for the most part, we're doing high flow nasal cannula. And I, so, so I, in some regards, these are patients we're taking care of, right? Because we're actually, we're keeping quite a few patients on the floor with high flow nasal cannula currently, as long as they stay under 60%. Um, and, and which has been in some ways good because it's helping keep the ICU from getting totally overloaded because they're already full, right? And so we're managing some sicker patients on the floor. So maybe this drug is good for those patients. It's interesting if you go back and look at Act 1, um, this same group, um, ordinal group six, the median time to recovery on remdesivir was 15 days versus 20 days, but that wasn't statistically significant. The subgroup in act one that had that, the most benefit was that ordinal scale five, which is basically just patients on supplemental oxygen. And, and their median time to recovery was seven days versus nine days. So it's kind of all over the place. It, it makes you wonder, is remdesivir like most helpful then in the patients who are not that sick, like this ordinal group five and less sick than that, people that were maybe going to get better anyway, like is the remdesivir really doing anything for those people? And then maybe the, the baricitinib is useful in patients who are pretty sick, like these people on high flow nasal cannula. Um, I don't know. I think uh, is baricitinib a miracle drug? No. Um, but is it doing something? it's probably has some benefit in some patients. And so then I think the question becomes, is it worth the cost? And is it worth um, giving that instead of dexamethasone? Because you probably don't want to give both because they're both a form of immunosuppression. And so the NIH COVID treatment guidelines panel, um, they did review all this data and, and they felt that there was insufficient data to recommend for or against use of baricitinib with remdesivir in patients where steroids can be used instead. They thought it was it made more sense to stick with the steroids since those have shown maybe a mortality benefit and they're cheaper. Um, they did recommend you could use baricitinib in the rare circumstances when steroids cannot be used. 
and I couldn't really think of a situation where you couldn't give someone steroids. I mean, maybe if they're like an active DKA, I wouldn't give it to them. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, they said it should definitely not be used in the absence of remdesivir since it's only been studied as an add-on to remdesivir. Which is crazy. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, right. Why, like we've discussed this before, but the, the remdesivir horse is so like, we are so, you know, closely or, or, you know, uh, we're, we're way too, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, invested or invested. Yeah. Like connected to remdesivir, you know, like yeah. all these trials that have a baseline of remdesivir administration that I'm not sure makes sense. Right. Well, yeah, no, I agree. It's like, you know, is this baricitinib trial, like, is the remdesivir just like background placebo? And, and we're really just seeing the effect of baricitinib in this trial? I don't know. It's kind right. of... Right. So now we're giving two really expensive medications instead yeah. of figuring out if, if one alone works, you know, we think yeah. maybe, remdesivir, you know, maybe remdesivir helps, but that comes back to the, is one day of recovery, you know, for all comers clinically significant and you could argue that it potentially is in the setting of a pandemic when people are you know really needing to get out of the hospital and we need the you know the hospital beds but i'm not sure it is and then again this theme of like how granular are you going to get with people people's care like when they cross you know from for baricitinib when they cross from six liters to to 30 percent on high flow nasal cannula is it is it at that point that you give the baricitinib like where there's just not you can't you know coordinate people's care on that like sort of granular of a level, you know, if like, right. Oh, if they're, you know, if they've been symptomatic for eight days, you should give remdesivir. Um, if it's longer than that, then you shouldn't, you know, it's like, that's not realistic. And I think the, uh, pie in the sky, you know, philosophical physiologic arguments of like, Oh, give this drug at five days, give this drug when they are on this much oxygen, give this drug when they're on this much oxygen, give this drug when they're in the ICU is not realistic. And yeah. we need to abandon that and we need to, you know, do studies that make sense. And I think, you know, act four to my eyes, is it going to be, is going to be helpful and, and hopefully, you know, direct our care further, but TBD. Not yeah. Even oh, so. yeah. I think, I think baricitinib versus dexamethasone will be an interesting study. I do think, you know, using these metrics of median time to recovery, like unless you can prove that it actually gets people out of the hospital faster, like a shorter hospital length of stay, I don't know that it's really that meaningful of a metric, honestly. Um, it feels a little bit like Tamiflu, but it is what we got. So. Um, I just wanted to briefly mention a few other articles that I thought were interesting this week. Um, the New England Journal published the safety and efficacy data for the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. Uh, this was a placebo-controlled trial of 43,000 patients, and in the 21,700 patients who got the vaccine, only eight had a symptomatic case of COVID-19 versus 162 in those who got the placebo. So the uh, trial authors said it had a 95% effectiveness, Main side effects were pain at the injection site, fatigue, and headache. So the real question is, when are you getting your vaccine, Austin? Hopefully Friday. Are you going to get it Friday? When's your last swing shift? Friday. Oh, okay. Lucky you, man. I got to work Saturday night. So <laughs> if I can get it at like right when my shift starts, that would be the best. Oh, that'd be amazing. I have a couple more studies here. Uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine published another randomized controlled trial of vitamin D supplementation to prevent falls. What do you think happened? 
<laughs> Negative. It did not prevent falls. In fact, in the patients who got higher doses, 2,000 units, 4,000 units, they might have had more falls. So uh, watch out, the dark money of the vitamin D lobby. Uh, also, really interesting paper in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. Um, they, they published a, a paper on a, a non-invasive respiratory protocol for COVID-19. So early in the pandemic, the Bay State Health System in Massachusetts um, had a, a protocol where if their patients were admitted to one of their system's hospitals and needed more than six liters nasal cannula or a non-rebreather up to 15 liters, then they intubated the patient. Uh, but during April, they decided to implement a less invasive approach with early use of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation and self-proning um, prior to intubation. And then they did a pre and post analysis after this intervention. And the mortality rates were the same before and after, 21.8 versus 21.9%. And there was no increase in like rapid responses or ICU consults, like patients crashing on the floor. There were actually way fewer ICU transfers. It went from 26.8% to 13.5%. Um, and uh, the, the proportion of patients intubated decreased from 25.2% to 10.7%. So that seemed like a, a pretty... Um, you know, good example of how to avoid overloading an ICU with people on ventilators who maybe don't need to be on ventilators. And I think that's what we've been trying to do here at the U of U is if we can keep them on high flow and not intubate them, great. Then you can avoid all of the complications of being on a vent, like the barotrauma and the, you know, ventilator associated pneumonia, et cetera. And then last one, last one, I promise, The Lancet published a study on iron deficiency in patients with acute heart failure. The AFFIRM AHF trial looked at 1,132 patients with acute heart failure with an EF less than 50% and a ferritin less than 100, or a ferritin between 100 and 299 and a transferrin saturation less than 20. They randomized them to placebo or IV ferric carboxymaltose. There was no difference in cardiovascular death, but there were fewer heart failure hospitalizations in the patients who got IV iron, uh, 217 versus 294. So... That was kind of an interesting finding to me. Um, we don't use the ferric carboxymaltose that I know. We, we use iron sucrose, but I, I would guess you probably have the same benefit. I don't know. Cool. Yeah, yeah one of the residents told me that you were giving out a lot of IV iron. Oh, really? <laughs> before, before I started on service, but that's good. You're preventing heart failure hospitalizations, not in a heart failure population, but I'm sure you're doing some good. Oh, I give <laughs> IV iron to everyone, man. It's the best. Okay, well, that's all we have for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you uh, to be determined. You know, we hope you all have a wonderful holiday season.